some suggestions for how to do this, how to do metta. That would be a good idea. How do you talk for eight days, nine days on metta and not actually say how to do it? So the beauty of metta is also that it can turn into something jhanic, profound stillness with the absence of thought, but uh, you can't initiate it and develop it without using discursive activity, some sort of processes of the mind. So it's a very beautiful thing, and it's somewhat, and not surprisingly, like art. It is a work of art. Great art always has a moral dimension to it. Nothing moves you and has any real meaning except deep moral concerns about what the highest values of your life are. So in the same way, you're working on a piece of art, and it's a beautiful thing to have that feel like you go into your studio and you have to face that blank canvas. Well, sometimes the canvas isn't blank. It's actually full of nightmarish <laughs> figures. <laughs> Could be ink blots, you know, <laughs> that look like bats or <laughs> demons. It would be nice if we could even just start with neutrality, but lots of people don't start with neutrality. They start with angst, anguish. They start with stories that have been cycling their whole lives, and they wonder, sometimes not very hopefully, if they can ever get over it or get past these constructs that seem so real about themselves. So it certainly cheers you up when you come to Buddhist ideas, and then they say, well, by the way, there is no self. Well, that's nice to hear. It would be a real tragedy if you were stuck with that thing. It was a real thing? No, it's not a real thing. So, of course, the idea that there isn't a real self is bizarre, scary, strange, hopeful. If you hear it in the right way, it's liberating. If you hear it in the wrong way, then it's just strange. But it's always meant to be liberating. The Buddha is always saying, now, this might sound strange at first, but it's really the only reason why there is hope. There isn't any solid, substantial, real, core self. And then he says, now, since that's the case, you can be creative and imaginative, and other people have thought through this, and they have some good suggestions. It's kind of like a waiter coming to your table in a good restaurant, and maybe you're not a gourmet diner, but you look at the thing and you say, what do you recommend? <laughs> oh, that's beautiful, so forth. So it's nice. The Buddha is saying, you know, have you tried the metta? <laughs> it's a, Oh, man, you can have it as an appetizer if you want, or a dessert. <laughs> you can have it as a main course. It's just so versatile. <laughs> it's delicious. You never get tired of it. It's the bread of life. Very nourishing. You can share it with others. Once you get into baking bread, some of our stewards discover making bread, and they get a lot of positive feedback. <laughs> Who doesn't like fresh bread? So you get to share that and share the benefits of your loving kindness as well. You get the, I mean, somebody who has loving kindness, they really talk about it almost as the smell of fresh bread, like around somebody who's got that good heartedness. It is as wholesome as the smell of fresh baked bread, isn't it?
The first technique, there are many techniques, but the first one is pretend you're somebody else. In some ways, you know, if you have not developed loving kindness, it's because of your idea of who you are, that you're not that kind of person. That's not the way you think about things. You have a few people that you like from time to time and other people you don't like, and that's a normal kind of thing. And uh, you get by, you know, but it's you're not walking around in a cloud of divinity or light radiating out or anything like that. It's just a kind of a more of a survival mode. So you think maybe that's for others, but how am I supposed to do that? Well, all you do is just say, okay, let's pretend I'm not me. Let's pretend I'm Gandhi. <laughs> now, nobody has to know about this. <laughs> you don't have to tell anybody <laughs> that you're Gandhi for the next few hours <laughs> or whatever, whoever you like. I was telling you about St. Francis, so, you know, he's talking to the birds and he's overspilling with love. So that's a nice one. You see the statues, he's got his arms open, he's kissing lepers and he has this friend, Brother Juniper, who is also a bit wiggy. <laughs> I guess wiggy's the wrong word <laughs> because they're all shaved. But um, Brother Juniper is turned on as well. He's basically into the love thing, and he is taking everything seriously that Jesus said. So he, he's joined the Franciscan order, and they're really letting go of everything. And they one day Brother Juniper goes out, and there's a guy that has no shirt and so it says in the Bible, if somebody has no shirt, give them your shirt. So the Franciscans only had one robe. So the Brother Juniper pulls off his robe, stark naked, and gives this guy, this beggar, his robe. And the beggar puts it on. And Juniper walks around naked. <laughs> and right, they did not even shoes because they went barefoot. The original Franciscans committed to being barefoot. So he comes back naked. And, you know, of course, in monasteries, I mean, it's the same in all monasteries. There's a whole spectrum of people who show up to want to be monks, right? And some of them are just a little nuts. <laughs> so they're thinking, oh, somebody's gone off again, you know. <laughs> Juniper explains, well, I ran into a guy with no shirt, so I gave him my robe, and that's why I'm naked. <laughs> okay, well, here's another robe then. <laughs> so, and in fact, he did it again. <laughs> It wasn't four days later that somebody had no shirt and Juniper comes back naked again. And then St. Francis starts the development of the rules. Even if somebody else is naked, you're not allowed to give your one robe away. You'll have to work it out some other way. <laughs> Find somebody who will give the guy a shirt or whatever. But this is actually similar to the development of rules for monks. All these kind of things people make sometimes radically, with a lot of goodwill behind it, but not a lot of circumspection, not a sense of the appropriate. So the Buddha has to say, well, that was very kind of you, but we can't be doing that all the time. So, And sometimes they're operating on their defilements and so forth. But anyway, so Juniper is happy to give everything away and walk away naked. He's in the right profession, all right? <laughs> but Francis is even worse in a better way. <laughs> <laughs> so he's he's just so transfixed by loving kindness that he tends, when he gets into a state of loving kindness, he starts floating off the ground. His eyes are rolling back in his head and he's floating up into the air until Juniper 
This is what Juniper said. He had to grab him by his feet to keep him from floating away. (laughs) Bring him back down to the ground. Now, that's a friend. That's what a friend does for you. When you start to float above the sidewalks of Portland, (laughs) dangling in the air with loving kindness, it would be nice to have a juniper around who can just pull you back down to the ground. Another Sangha member who will understand what you're doing. You can be either Juniper or St. Francis. Just be somebody else for a while and walk around and just think, what would it be like to be one of these guys? (laughs) Of course, you can be Mother Teresa on the streets of... She's from a cloistered monastery originally, a contemplative monastery, but she was looking out the window of a train in India, the absolute street devastation of people's lives, and she just said, I have to step out of this cloister. I've got to do something here, so... She started to do that. She was asked, you know, what keeps you going? And she said, well, we meditate about four hours a day as a community. So in the morning and in the evening. And we live in a very clean and orderly environment, which allows us to recharge our batteries. And we we would never last if we didn't meditate. (laughs) So whatever form that took, but a significant portion of the day. So it's not just a street worker, social worker, but... And she said it's not that somebody's going to survive or anything. It's each one of these beggars or lepers or starving children that we pick up is Jesus. It's not really anybody. Each one is this kind of spirit. And I don't intend to cure the problem of poverty either, she said. She quoted Jesus that... The poor shall always be with you. And she said, I wouldn't want to contradict Jesus. (laughs) I'm not thinking, when is this going to be over? Like, when am I going to finally get the last impoverished kid off the street? She had no intention of ever doing that. She said, well, I'd be out of a job, wouldn't I? (laughs) So it's an equanimous type of loving kindness. It's not frustrated with the failures of the world spiritual loving-kindness, where you're practicing it in the sense of we're not going to fix ultimately anything to cure anything, but we get the benefits, vast benefits, and some people who contact it will also get the benefit, And that's even more gratifying. But if we were told ahead of time that none of our efforts would result in a single person learning about loving-kindness as well, we should still do it. That would be still a rewarding, fully rewarding life. So you can find your character. There's all kinds of marvelous stories about people in history, and of course the stories of the monks as well. Ananda was full of loving kindness, and the Buddha, of course. In general, the reputation of the monks was very good for just being not threatening. When you saw the monks, you were never afraid. Even the animals were not afraid. This is something to walk around and say, you know, just to yourself, like, no one needs to be afraid of me. Isn't that nice? There's not a single, like those marmots, (laughs) it's in their genes, they run. (laughs) It's a bit of a show at this point. I mean, they know. (laughs) We haven't done anything for 15 years. I mean, what do you think? We're going to suddenly have a flip out and (laughs) make some marmot stew or something. (laughs) They've got rather 
human type hands actually they can hold on to your finger like that and uh, they like uh, purple lupins purple lupins will come out soon and they cannot resist purple lupins they would actually be sitting on her knee and holding onto her finger and eating these purple lupins out of her hand it's like looking at her with these kind of glistening eyes you know <laughs> so you can do that you know you can specialize like in marmots if you want <laughs> whatever i mean it's an art project isn't it it's not like we're going to fix the world that's a very frustrating project you're not going to fix the world but you're going to have a loving encounter with a lot of beings and they may respond they may not you just set it aside it's your spiritual work and if you need to be somebody else in order to break out of your own reservations about this then you just pretend to be somebody else i mean this is just normal human behavior if you go to an acting class they're going to have you pretend to be somebody else all the time <laughs> ah we're pretending all the time who are we anyway we somebody with our boss and then we're somebody with our mother and then we're somebody with our girlfriend and then we're somebody with our child we have roles so you can use your imagination and act yourself out of this so this was induction and this is also the practice of imagination and the buddha you know the instruction we had is imagine radiating to the four quarters the first quarter the south to the north to the east to the west imagine all the beings out there he's offering you some imaginative exercises here to use your imagination to cultivate this so this is not just watching the breath or something you've got to understand that different meditation topics require different structures for development it requires mindfulness in the fact that you want to remember what you're doing you are practicing loving kindness not just thinking for a minute or something like this is like you're working on this story you have to find material that speaks to you and this is it's quite legitimate in these days they didn't have books so the buddha couldn't say recommend read a story <laughs> but he obviously is recommending hear a story why should he instruct people to go to the temples to the monasteries and hear the dhamma and when you hear the dhamma what do you expect to be hearing he's telling the lay people go on the apostatas go once a week or at least every couple weeks and spend some time there and hear listen ask the monk to talk to you we just did this historical thing i was asked in pali to give a talk you know so go to the monasteries ask them to talk to you about dhamma and what are they going to do they got the largest collection of stories in human history collections and collections of stories they're going to tell you stories that move you that help your imagination to find your way into this new way of thinking if you read dickens if you read charles dickens about the state of child welfare in 19th century england when 7 year olds had to work 12 hours a day in factories you will be moved and maybe the industrial period of abuse of human labor and children ended because of literature like dickens charles dickens because when people read that they could see through the eyes of a higher development a higher being normally people are like 
you know, well, everybody's got to make a living and it's hard and whatever, you know, it's good for them, you know. (laughs) You can get very unsympathetic about all this, but he's helping you walk through a vision towards the opening of the heart and seeing into the suffering of other beings and understanding what it's like to be a child that is overworked and can't do anything about it and so forth. So this is what you need to do is enrich your stockhouse of stories and use those stories to get you there, to find your way there. And when you're dry, somebody else is full. Your imagination's not always available to you. So listen to a Dhamma talk on metta. Just have it playing in the background, you know. Have a little stockpile of them. Like an amateur musician, you just find time for it and you listen and you play and you go to your teacher and you get some feedback and you're working on a project here. You can also use your memory in your own life if you could go back and do certain things differently what would you do and a lot of the times you know mostly you probably wouldn't get all that angry or uptight or worried and everything if you had to do it over again because it wasn't worth it and that a lot of encounters could have been a lot more friendly could have been a lot more tolerant a lot more forgiving and if you Look at your own assessments of yourself in retrospect when you were young. Then also, you know, things that you thought about yourself and the harsh criticisms you had and everything. From this point of view, you think, well, this a youngster, 20-year-old, <laughs> what do they know? 25, you don't know anything. <laughs> You're all just confused and don't know any better and stuff like that. So it's... a You can go back and bless yourself. and You can practice loving kindness for yourself. You can go and sit on a park bench with your 21-year-old self and say, so how's it going? (laughs) Anything going on in your life? (laughs) Maybe I have a few suggestions. (laughs) So you can feel free to, you know, of course, the Dhamma is full of imagination and beyond, they're not interested really in a lot of realism. They're not interested in science or even that much in logic. So you find a different kind of language, a very creative and boundless, boundaryless. They go to different realms. They go to the heavens. They converse with the angels. They get visits from the angels. They encounter ghosts and they talk to them and offer condolences and there's no fear they just have empathy and sympathy for beings so you see the buddha is ranging through the whole spectrum of possibilities of the deepest kind of suffering to the exquisite beauty of goodness and uh, generosity and all of these things so this is the expanded imagination and consciousness, and you expand your consciousness through imagination, you start being not so concerned with truth about these stories. They're not really true stories, but they're stories about truth. They're truer than true stories, as art is. I mean, a lot of art is like, that's not what a forest looks like. (laughs) 
but in this strange way, it is how I feel about the forest. It captures more about the forest than if you photographed it. And even, of course, the photograph can be, it's the timing, it's the light and everything. Because what is a forest? There isn't a forest. It's a moment to do with light and your feeling and so forth. So you'll see in paintings, forests sometimes are very gloomy and dark. <laughs> sometimes they're open and shafts of light coming through them. Sometimes there's other beings in them. Sometimes they're scary, forbidding, and so forth. Because there is no such thing as a forest apart from your relationship to this thing. You've got to recognize the possibility of creativity with the mind and the heart and the emotions and go for to explore this. The teachings are full of creative exercises. And there is a teaching also called Deva Nusati, which is the recollection of angels or radiant beings from higher dimensions. And also, in the Tibetan tradition, you spend quite a bit of time pretending you're a god. It's called deity practice. You've got to fully imagine yourself as a deity. In the end, they make sure that you understand even the deities are empty of self. There's no reality to any of this, including you. There's no substance to any of this. But they pull you out of your conviction about a real self by saying, you know, you just were a deity for a while, weren't you? <laughs> this is an exquisitely detailed practice. And you see where the roots of that are. Right from the Buddha, this Deva Nusati, mindfulness of the devas. You can interpret that as, and probably as closer to it is, mindfulness of your own devic qualities. What are those devic qualities? What are those light being qualities? What are those angelic qualities? From a Buddhist point of view, it's quite easy to get into heaven. Just one good act of generosity is enough. When you go back and recall that, if it's strong, it's transformative of your consciousness. It's enough to produce heaven. A full act of sharing and giving with love, with sincerity, with joy, before, during, after, that's enough to produce the Devic consciousness, the Brahma Vihara, the place where the gods live. And Metta is a Brahma Vihara. You're trying to become an angel. <laughs> You're going to move into the... They're very nice descriptions of the places they live. They actually... Um, they're very close to spaceships, really. <laughs> it's hard not to uh, notice that that sounds like a spaceship. <laughs> they're kind of glass palaces that float around, actually. They move wherever you want them to. And they're flooded with lights, different colored lights. <laughs> Red lights, blinking lights. <laughs> and they float in the air. And you're in them, and you're tall and beautiful and transparent and luminous. Any suggestion that sounds like a spaceship is purely coincidence. <laughs> they are a vihara, so they're dwelling. They're a mansion, a place where you, you 
you're going, well, and this is, of course, why bring some sort of sour, skeptical stuff to this? Like, what do you want to ruin the party? I mean, <laughs> it's not math. It's not physics either. It's something else, which if you want to find a life in math and physics, good luck with that. Even Einstein mostly played his violin and had casual affairs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, you can't live on physics. You can't. <laughs> it's just not enough. <laughs> so humans are much more than that. We need, and we can enter into different realms. We should just realize there's other parts of our mind and other parts of our brain. And when we step into it, it's like, I never want to leave this place. This is life. This is what I always hoped it would be. And kids, like young kids, are much more able to just do that. They don't have any boundaries, you know. This is why you can't actually do magic for young kids. When you're five, there's no reason a rabbit shouldn't come out of a hat. <laughs> it's nice a rabbit came out of a hat, you know. And? <laughs> when you're an adult, you think... That was good because that breaks all the laws of physics. But the five-year-old has no laws of physics. There are no boundaries. So you don't want to get carried away. Laws of physics have a certain explicitly narrow application in the human life. You know, It's very good for certain things, but not for everything. It just doesn't work that way. The boundaries of the laws of physics and everything must be set aside for... There's another enlivened much superior dimension. Physics can be kept as a kind of a curious hobby. It's a charming little game. Amusing for, you know, you can fiddle around for an afternoon. It's like playing solitaire or something. <laughs> two and two is four and four. If you divide it in half, it'd be two again. That's wonderful. <laughs> so, who thought of that? You know, the original mathematicians like Pythagoras and so forth, they weren't mathematicians. They were mystics. And when they discovered the principles of mathematics, especially geometric shapes, that there were constant, like you could access the triangle and so forth through formulas because they were interested in math. This was an indication of sublime truth in the universe, like mystical truth. Pythagoras apparently was a celibate. And... Uh, he was so weird, so spiritual, they apparently did away with him at some point. But it wasn't about the usefulness of math. <laughs> it was about the mysterious, revealing truth about the universe. That was what it was. It carried you away. It put you in ecstasies and trances. Now that's the same thing with Plato as well. He was a geometrician. He had decided that 20 different geometric shapes describe everything in the universe. <laughs> now that, he would have been floating like St. Francis a lot. It wasn't that he was going to use the geometry to do much. He wasn't a practical person. It just blew his mind. <laughs> it just transported him. So that was the, you know, the function of it. It was a religious experience for him. It wasn't a scientific or mathematic experience. So we inherit all this stuff. 
we're told that it's very good, very important and everything, but all we can do is apply our mathematics and our physics, we apply it in a kind of a, just a very practical way, which is not very exalted. It can't give you that ecstasy. The Buddha is calling you again and again to expand your imagination and to redo your life and go back and see how it could have been easier, could have been better, could have been sweeter, and learn the lesson from it and say, well, I won't make those mistakes again. I won't choke this time. I won't get lost in the details. I won't get over serious about it because last time I got over serious and a year later I was laughing about it. So why don't I learn the lesson? You know, Why don't I laugh now instead of wait a year? So this is the the how to work the clay of loving kindness. You're shaping this thing. You're playing with it. That's the way. And uh, get yourself a bag of stories as well to go back and you can never hear these stories too many times. And Whatever moves you, lifts you, frees you, opens you, and see how far you can get carried away. Don't worry, you won't be inappropriate. That's the thing is, everything, I have to watch this because then I could get strange and so forth, but you won't, you won't. You might get a little strange, but <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> People say, you know, you've changed, you know, you're... I like it. You know, it's good. <laughs> yeah. Next time, take me along on that retreat thing you do, because you came back all kind of glowy. <laughs> so that's a few things about how to do meta.